Welcome to Impact on Record, a podcast that takes a deeper dive into impact investing. We'll bring you the stories about the deal makers, the structure of the deals, and most importantly, the impacted. This podcast is brought to you by The Dreamer. Hello. The Skeptic. Hey. And me, The Realist. On today's episode, we have the pleasure of speaking to Daniel Goldfarb, co-founder and CEO of Lendable, a debt platform designed specifically for African alternative lenders. Prior to Lendable, Daniel was a VC partner at Green Start and a program director at Americans for Energy Leadership. Daniel and his team at Lendable are making credit accessible by building technology and financial products to bring finance to borrowers that deserve it. Please visit www.lendablemarketplace.com to learn more. And we're going on record in three, two, and... Thank you, and Daniel, for joining us on today's podcast. Thank you for being a part of our conversation on Impact on Record. So why don't we just get started? Why don't you give us a brief background, brief sense of your background, and what you're currently working on at Lendable? Yeah, thanks for having me on the podcast. Really excited about what you guys are up to. Um, so my name is Daniel Goldfarb. I'm co-founder and CEO of Lendable. Um, and my background is primarily clean energy uh, policy and finance. And really the root of Lendable came from um, uh, my days in VC uh, in clean tech VC in San Francisco. And the kind of realization that led to, to um, us starting to think about this opportunity was as we were in, in my Green Start days, which was the firm I worked at, as we were looking at a whole bunch of solar finance deals, um, the the not so innovative realization came to us that, you know, a solar panel costs about the same whether you buy it in the U.S. or Kenya or India or Mexico. You know, you have some difference for that, but, but um, it's more or less the same cost. Um, yet the cost of electricity, i.e. the thing you're replacing with the solar panel, um, costs uh, a vastly different amount. So, you know, in rural areas in, in East Africa or India, it might cost 10 to, to I've seen 40x, as a number being thrown around, to access electricity um, or, or, you know, electricity substitutes like kerosene. Um, and so if a solar panel costs the same in the United States and Kenya, yet the thing it replaces costs something very different, then the potential financeable margin um, in those two contexts is very different and the potential impact on the person receiving that, uh, that asset is very different. And so that was really the beginning of the idea for Lendable was doing due diligence on a few companies um, doing solar finance outside of the US. Ultimately, our uh, investment committee denied all three of the deals I pitched them. So I said, okay, I guess I'll go leave and start my own thing. Um, and so that was really where, where Lendable came from. Wow. So you took a huge risk, like starting a, a firm or a company on your own. So what was that process like? And, you know, yeah. What would you say to yeah, like so other, you know, folks who are considering or thinking about starting their own company within the social impact space? So so um, I, I didn't start Lendable alone, and I don't think I could have done it alone is the short answer. Um, starting a company is this never-ending act of asking people 
for help and being continually surprised by how much people are willing to help. Lendable was actually founded by myself and um, originally one other individual, uh, Dylan Freed, who uh, is our CTO um, and was a startup technologist. So he was one of the first employees at Lyft and had built a whole bunch of distributed systems technology for other startups as well. And and we kind of commiserated around the opportunity of bringing technology to um, uh, asset finance uh, in a in a frontier market context. And then a third co-founder, uh, Arjun Batra, joined us from from BlackRock, um, where he was working on um, new kind of financing opportunities at the intersection of technology and credit. Um, and so, you know. That's the first part, which is I couldn't have done it without two people that that are in many ways um, smarter than me uh, and that I really look up to and respect and, and have been lucky enough to get to work along. On top of that, we were incredibly lucky early on to have just an all-star group of investors and advisors that were crazy enough to take a bet that you know, three relatively young people who, who really didn't know that much about the specific topic they were working on um, could figure it out. And so, you know, everyone from from angel investors day one to people in the industry who signed on as as advisors and gave us kind of invaluable knowledge. Um, yeah, it, it's been it's been just a, a never ending uh, exercise in in kind of being in finding gratitude in, in all the all the giving that people are willing to do. Wow. Yes. That, uh, yeah, you definitely need partners and you had an amazing group of people so, <laughs> to say the least. And of course, you know, with your background and experience. So yeah, you guys make an amazing team. Uh, so why don't you yeah. tell, tell our, our audience what Lendable does, how it's structured, who you, who you, some of your customers are and some of the investors and why. You yeah. Started. Yeah. I think you sort of mentioned why, but like how, yeah. Yep. So, Lendable was started to help address um, the gap between the number of people who deserve access to credit and the number of people that do have access to credit. And I very intentionally chose the word deserve. Um, credit is an act of trust. Um, you make a decision that somebody will pay you back. And and one of my um, uh, favorite quotes about finance, which I'm going to totally butcher, is something to the effect of um, finance is the act of financial time travel. Um, uh, in a credit relationship, you are saying, I am going to predict the future. And the, the number one variable that I'm going to predict based on is my trust in you as my counterparty. And we believe that uh, there are a lot of people out there who deserve the trust that's implicit in credit. And that trust is the idea that I'm going to give you some money. And in a few months or a few years, you're going to give me back that money with interest. And we have the belief as a company, and I've started to prove it, that there's a lot of people out there who deserve that trust um, when it comes to the right financial product for them. And so that is the, the mission of the company, which is to increase access um, to finance for people uh, that, that deserve it. Um, and the goal that we all rally around as a company is how do we how do we provide loans? And it's a crazy big goal. Um, how do we help open up markets to to provide capital to 100 million people? And 
the reason we believe that that number is possible um, is because of what we do in the world. So Lendable's business is working with alternative lenders, so non-banking lending institutions. That could be anything from a solar home finance system uh, in Kenya to a uh, auto finance company in Uganda um, to a SME finance company in Ghana. Um, so anyone that's not a bank but is providing credit um, and we connect them to commercial capital in the US and Europe. And the reason we think this is um, necessary is because you have uh, over a trillion dollars of capital sitting on the sideline in US and Europe. And in Sub-Saharan Africa alone, the World Bank estimates that there's about 1.1 trillion or something like that of capital need from SMEs. And so the really simple kind of question arises in your mind when you hear those two numbers and you say, why can't you solve the, the problem of the credit gap with uh, the solution of a whole bunch of uh, excess capital? And so what we're trying to do is bring uh, commercial rigor uh, to that form of finance, to essentially um, an aggregation of consumer and small business credit. Um, so that, that commercial rigor comes in the form of bringing cutting edge credit technology to an industry where information is scarce and uh, faith is low. So we really have to kind of overshoot the mark when it comes to sophistication of analytics and analysis of the underlying credit um, that comes to uh, structuring and financial operations. So making sure when commercial investors look at a deal in Kenya and Uganda, they can't just say no based on the fact that it's a uh, sloppy deal or that it doesn't have the hallmarks of a well-structured or well-managed transaction. Um, and then that comes to scale. So aggregating enough alternative lenders on similar structures with similar credit metrics that you can start getting much larger commercial investors interested in this asset class in a way that lowers the cost of capital over time. So, so that's very much what we're trying to do. And right now we're live in Kenya and Uganda. Um, we've been lending there for a little over a year. And now we are in 2018 gonna be entering uh, um, Ghana, Rwanda, um, and then we're looking at a few other countries in sub-Saharan Africa to, to go into as well in 2018. So not to, to get too technical, I'm just going to ask you, what has your experience been just generally, just the learning curve? You know, obviously there's a lot of cultural norms. What has the experience been so far? Yeah, it, it, the learning is never ending. Um, one of the best decisions we made as a company early on was uh, me moving out to Kenya and building an office in Kenya. And so we have, uh, I think now 12 employees in Kenya, six in New York. Our Kenyan office will grow to about 17 or 18 in the next few months. Um, and so contextual on the ground knowledge is, is paramount. Um, you can't make decisions uh, when you don't know what's actually happening on the ground. Um, so that, that's one big piece of it. Um, another big piece of it is we are bringing a very new set of financial products to um, the countries we work in. So we do our first product in the market is an off-balance sheet uh, consumer credit or small business credit product. So basically, we work with an alternative lender. We basically facilitate the purchase of receivables 
off their balance sheet, um, their loan book, and um, a whole bunch of U.S. and European investors purchase the the rights to those receivables. And so that off balance sheet transaction is something that's really uh, not been done much in the regions we work in. And so there's a lot of both um, working with um, lawyers, accountants, regulators to make sure that everything we're doing is um, is safe for investors, safe for alternative lenders, and is compliant with local laws and local tax. Um, uh, and then there's a level of education for our counterparties, um, because most of them have never done a transaction um, like we do. And so, you know, we're still, you know, we've probably done now around 10 of these off balance transactions in Kenya and Uganda alone, making us the largest or, or at least the most frequent um, off balance sheet transactor in the region. Um, and yet it's only 10. And so we're educating from a place of still learning ourselves. Um, so a big part of it is, is that continual loop of learning and educating. So how much have you uh, deployed today? And yeah, so what, in our, what in industries? Is, is there a focus? I know you talked about uh, uh, solar uh, financing, but is there any particular bias towards certain certain areas? Uh, city versus rural, uh, new energy versus just where the need is? Yeah, so, so we're vertical agnostic. We The way we look at the world is we look for financial products that are quality products for the end borrower um, and that have quality returns. Um, and so whether that is a pay solar company or a motorcycle taxi finance company or a small business inventory finance company, um, the whole reason we built our technology stack um, was to analyze very quickly and very accurately the loan book quality. And from the loan book quality, you can really derive the quality of the product for the end borrower. Um, and so uh, that's the way we look at the world. When it comes to rural versus urban, um, as long as customers are paying and, uh, and the product, again, is a good product for them, we don't really care where uh, it is in that sense. Um, so that, that gets kind of where we land. Um, as I mentioned, we started lending uh, last October, uh, so October 2016. Uh, and so it's been a year and one month since our first penny out the door. Um, we've done to date um, about 5 million lent and by the end of this year, so in the next month and a half, that'll jump up to about 7 million. So that, that's in our first year of lending. Um, and uh, it's starting to grow um, on a per alternative lender basis really rapidly. So, you know, we, uh, for the first time ever, uh, last week, did our third transaction with the same alternative lender, which which is a big part of our thesis, um, that once we start working and technologically integrate with a partner, we can provide them over years um, scalable forms of finance and, and repeatable finance. Obviously, uh, the Kenyan-Uganda market is unique because of mobile payments and mm -hmm. its, its advancement in that part of, of Africa. How has that helped you to just refine your model and, and scale even further? Yeah, quality data is, is incredibly important when trying to use advanced algorithmic approaches to credit. Um, so the reason we started in Kenya and Uganda was exactly that, was 
the uh, the quantity of quality data in that region is is really high. And so a big part of us getting launched was not trying to go immediately and do the biggest deals we could do. Um, because again, we're trying to approach this problem from a very different angle. We're trying to say, look, there's no credit scores in this region and there's really no rated transactions. And so we really need to rethink how we look at risk. And we believe the way to look at risk is with automatic uh, or automated pricing. And so to do that, you need to train a model. And to train a model, you need a lot of good data. And so a lot of our first few years um, was dedicated to exactly that problem. How do we get as much quality data as we can to train uh, models to help us automate our pricing um, and, and therefore our risk adjustment? And so Kenya and Uganda are the market. Kenya is the market leader in, in mobile money penetration. Uganda, the second most. But one of the trends we're seeing that's really heartening is in Tanzania, in Ghana, in Ivory Coast. Um, the penetration of mobile money is growing rapidly amongst the borrowers for alternative lenders because a lot of alternative lenders explicitly target um, mobile money users because it lowers their collection costs and increase their, increases their information transparency. And so um, we're seeing just kind of a, a tidal wave across the continent when it comes to um, uptake in, in mobile money, which to your point is, is kind of crucial to uh, new approaches to credit. And so the quality of data might not be um, captured because there's no credit reporting in the region, but the quantity of data you mentioned is really high. So what are the default rates like? So it, it totally depends on the industry and the country and all the way down to the region of the country. Um, what's so uh, complex, but also such a fun problem um, when it comes to financing credit in this region is there's just a lot of heterogeneity. So if you look at the U.S., U.S. credit, there's a lot of homogeneity. There's a lot of homogeneity because people have um, all similar credit scores. And so we all act um, in reaction to fear of uh, our credit score going down. And in most areas of Sub-Saharan Africa that we've worked in, uh, a credit score is just not a uh, viable stick. And so at this point, and so the uh, levers that a credit operation has to incentivize repayment are all heterogeneous based on the product they provide. So if you're a pay-as-you-go solar company, you can turn off someone's electricity. If you're a Boda uh, Boda Finance, which is a, um, uh, a motorbike taxi finance company, um, you can use social pressure from the taxi stages to enforce uh, credit collections. And based on those different enforcement mechanisms, you're going to see different repayment patterns because they have different uptake and different um, impact in terms of magnitude. And so you see a range of defaults in different industries ranging from uh, as low as um, four or five percent, uh, all the way up to 25 percent. But it's important to look within context because uh, default rates um, are fine no matter where they are, as long as they're propor sorry, proportional to yields. So you can have way higher default rates if your yields are way higher, right, because you have more take. And therefore, you have more cushion. Um, again, in the U.S., we work in a mostly uh, commodity financial industry 
where everyone makes about the same thing on lending. That's just not true in Sub-Saharan Africa, where um, yields vary greatly based on product. So different products um, have very different yields and therefore should have very different default rates because they're taking different risk. And, and that's exactly what we see. Uh, but the important part is we see a lot of companies with very um, healthy net yields, which means they're financeable. What does that look like? On average, uh, what is it? And yeah, the interest like, rates nu numerically. Yeah, um, interest rates are all over the place and really hard to discern because no one actually advertises an APR. Um, one of the big challenges, I think, uh, or opportunities for um, credit businesses in Sub-Saharan Africa is to standardize consumer uh, financing costs. So. If you go into the Kenyan market, you just see all kinds of crazy stuff. You see 2% interest loans, and then you look closer, and it's 2% every 14 days. <laughs> um, and you, know, you hear people that run these companies make the argument that, well, no one's lending to my borrowers, and my borrowers are very price uh, inelastic, and therefore I don't need to care about that. My borrowers are paying me back, and they seem to like the product, so why should I care about that? And the argument that we always try to make is everything looks really good in credit until it doesn't. Um, and usually credit um, crises occur suddenly and they look nothing like business as usual. And so you should not be designing your information to your customers nor your products based on business as usual. You should design it for a credit crisis. And what I mean by that is you should design something that your customers will know is fair, the regulator will know is fair, and your staff will know is fair, so that when things don't go so well, um, you're all aligned on on you know that that sense that this was a fair transaction that we should both work um, uh, from a place of goodwill to solve. Um, so, what are some of the competitors or other companies that are in the space doing what you're doing? And I guess give us like a sense of the overall demand. Yeah. So um, what we do at the end of the day is we provide liquidity to balance sheet lenders. So if you're a company that, that uses equity uh, to finance your loan book, we help you break that cycle and grow exponentially. And so the question of competition is, is twofold. One is, who else is doing that? And then the question is, who else is doing that in a similar way? Right? There, there's two levels of what you could view as competition. Um, and then there's a question of, of what can the market bear or, or how big is the opportunity? Um, I'll, I'll start with the easy one, which is how big is the opportunity. And it's easy because um, no one knows. Um, the information about scale of lending is, uh, is really bad, uh, even on a country by country level. And so what we have uh, is anecdotal. So we have 10 alternative lenders on the platform. Uh, we have another handful signed that we're in the process of onboarding. So we have a, a small but kind of meaningful sample set um, of lenders. And what we see is that our alternative lenders, on average, are doubling to tripling their loan book every year. Um, and that's just um, you know crazy growth, right? Um, that'll level off over time. A lot of our lenders are lending in industries that didn't exist five years ago. Um, and so we're still at the beginning of that curve where it's really steep. 
Um, so, so we expect it to level, but we're seeing alternative lenders go from 1 million lent in their first year to 3 million in their second year to nine uh, to 40 to, you know, and, and growing really quick. And so um, that, that gets us really excited. Um, the question of who else is trying to finance them, it's a hodgepodge. I mean, you have the traditional microfinance impact funds, um, mostly out of Switzerland, um, Netherlands, uh, primarily those two. And, and so those players are doing primarily equity and term debt and primarily lending um, to traditional microfinance companies um, or traditional credit entities or small banks. Um, you then have opportunistic um, alternative credit funds, um, and there's very few of them uh, focusing in sub-Saharan Africa, and they're typically pretty small. They're typically sub $50 million uh, is what we've seen. And a lot of them are focusing on kind of more traditional debt deals like uh, infrastructure, small infrastructure projects, um, uh, small sovereign debt projects, uh, and things like hotel construction and whatnot. And so um, haven't yet really, I think, cracked this consumer credit problem because of the fact that it's really hard to understand the underlying credit risk. And so there's, and then there's the banks, which, which aren't doing much at all um, because of their need for uh, cash collateral ratios, um, personal guarantees, uh, property as collateral, things that, that, that alternative lenders just don't have. And so the reality of our industry is today that there's not a lot of competition. There's, there's not a lot of money flowing into the space. And, and that's the problem. Um, the, one, the one area that I think is potentially competitive or disruptive is um, DFIs. Um, so DFIs do, uh, do a lot of indirect investing into funds. And, and you know, we have lots of really productive conversations with DFIs around that. But some DFIs do direct lending. And, and what we've seen is that can either be a really amazing industry building exercise or it can be a really destructive exercise for an industry. And, and that's because when you have, uh, you know, our job at the end of the day is to convince U.S. alternative credit investors that have never done an African deal before to try something new. Um, and so we spend a bunch of time convincing them uh, to look at deals. And, and when a DFI comes in uh, and essentially offers uh, non-commercial rates to, to an alternative lender, um, it can really uh, burn the fingers of commercial investors who view their time as uh, very, very scarce. And therefore, when they spend a bunch of time on the deal and then they don't get the deal because somebody whose motive is impact makes the deal, then they say, I don't want to touch this industry anymore um, because it's a waste of time. It's, it's too unpredictable. Um, and I have other areas that might be lower yield, but are more predictable. And so, you know, that's really the thing we worry about most is, is not competition, but rather um, disruption. Daniel, do you see any other opportunities for um, public or nonprofit participants um, and, um, and areas of collaboration? So I guess what I mean is, you know, you mentioned the, D the DFIs and how they'll, they'll come in with like non-market rate offers, but... Um, at least in the U.S., and maybe it's, you know, just not feasible, um, there are kind of some some uh, public sector players who are coming in in a more junior um, 
junior part of the the credit stack in order to kind of help collateralize you know the the loans in another way and and uh, diffuse um risk more broadly are there any of those types of opportunities that you see yeah I, yes unequivocally yes um there is um i'll give you a, a really specific anecdote but i think if if um if impact investors, whether they're foundations, whether they're uh, ESG funds, whether they're DFIs, um, want to have dialogue with commercial investors, there's a lot to be done. I think the challenges we see are usually when the two sides don't want to talk to each other, or the two sides come into the conversation knowing what they want already um, in terms of structure versus saying, here's what I want to achieve in the end state. How do we get there together? And so I'll give you a tangible example of something we're working on, but we're seeing um, really, really incredible uh, kind of proactive engagement of foundations um, and impact investors, which is um, we've traditionally targeted um, fully commercial investors in one of two formats, either a syndication format, so a um, asset-backed note that goes out to a number of investors on a single transaction, and increasingly on what we call multi-originator uh, SPVs. So SPVs we launched that purchase receivables from lots of different originators, and they've been entirely commercial. We're really proud. Of that. So we've gotten um, now three credit funds in the U.S. who've never done a deal out of the U.S. to deploy millions of dollars into um, African deals, um, and do that entirely because of the risk return. So they don't care at all about uh, impact or or sector focus, um, and that's really exciting to us. Um, and so now the question is, how do we scale that? Um, and how do we scale it in a way that lowers the cost of capital for all, all, our alternative lenders and ultimately for the end borrower? And so what we're working on now is a blended finance facility. And um, the reason we're working on that is we've had a whole bunch of impact investors or foundations come to us and say, we really like what you're doing. Um, we don't need the returns you're offering, but there's other things we want. Um, we currently don't do very rigorous impact reporting because our investors haven't cared about it. And so a lot of the impact investors say, we, we'd love to invest in this. We're willing to take lower returns if we get impact reporting and if we get more protection. Um, because at the end of the day, we're trying to do principal pre uh, preservation and, and redeploy our capital, recycle our capital over and over again. We're trying to move a billion dollars a year by 2021. Um, that sounds absolutely audacious and crazy, but we believe that's the tip of the iceberg when it comes to frontier market, consumer and small business credit. So when you ask the question where we see this going, um, the question we ask ourselves is, um, what does it look like to do that? And we believe um, what it looks like, to uh, the, the, the vision for that is something we can actually look to the recent past to fi figure out. And so if you look to, um, uh, online lending uh, in the US, which you know some people call peer-to-peer -peer lending, uh, although it became very quickly non-peer-to-peer -peer lending. If you look at that industry, you can see a really clear roadmap for how a um, alternative investment uh, asset class um, that was based on technology and no one thought was good credit went from being a niche industry to being a uh, you know multi tens of billions of dollars a year lending industry uh, in the U.S. and what that looks like is you're constantly moving up the ladder of of commercial investors um, and 
diversifying the types of financial instruments, everything from warehouse lines to securitizations to syndicate, syndicated debt. Um, and all of that is crucial steps to getting different types of capital interested. And at Lendable, we view our role as is bringing in a bunch of different types of capital, whether those are credit funds, hedge funds, pension funds, that can participate in an asset class because of the technology that we bring to bear, because of the operational uh, sophistication and capacity, and can participate in an asset class that they otherwise wouldn't. Um, and then on the alternative lender side, we're simplifying what is an incredibly complex um, thing to do, which is raising different types of capital over time. And for these alternative lenders, what we always say internally is what we're trying to do is allow them to do what they do best, which is to lend, to find customers, design products for them and lend to them. And so if we can take capital raising or scalable capital raising off their plate, then we're doing our job at the end of the day. So so the way we view this is is it looks a lot like other asset classes 10 years from now. And the reason we think that's necessary is this problem is a massive problem back to $1.1 trillion. And we're not going to solve that with foundation money and DFI money. We have to solve that with the markets. And to solve that with the markets, we need to think like the markets. Uh, we can't think we're different than the markets. What I should have said early on when talking about the, the how we work with companies is um, uh, when you look at the cost of, of capital, you got to look at it all the way down through the value chain. So it always starts with the end borrower. The end borrower creates 100% of the value, right? All of the repayment comes from them and the interest comes from them. And the rest of the value chain is just giving that up. So they're the most important part. And when you look at their economics, the way you have to think about it is do you leave them uh, with either more revenue or less cost. And so to give a really tangible example, we work with a company on the coast of Kenya called Watu Credit that does boda boda finance, motorcycle taxi finance. And for a motorcycle taxi driver, they, uh, before they have a financed asset, they borrow an asset, uh, they rent it indefinitely, and 60% of their income goes to renting that asset. And so they take home 40% of their total income. Uh, when you finance an asset for one of these Boda Boda drivers, um, their uh, split stays about the same for 18 months. So they continue taking home 40% of what they make. Um, but after 18 months, that number jumps up to 100%. So they over double their revenue uh, or their take home income after 18 months. And that gives them the cash flow basis to then uh, start investing in maybe a small shop or another motorcycle. And then when you look at the alternative lender, Watu Credit, um, you know, they are able to charge a healthy enough margin to essentially build a business in a really hard environment where they're doing something for the first time ever. Um, in, in East Africa, they're building new technology um, and they're expanding really rapidly. Um, and then part of their margin, right, gets passed on to commercial investors all the way at the top, um, which are, you know, who's on the other side of our market. But fundamentally, if the end borrower product, i.e. the Boda Boda finance loan, uh, doesn't work for the borrower, you're going to have a problem up that, up that chain. So I just think it's really important to understand that economics and how those numbers break down as you go up. Totally agree. We definitely need to start thinking like the markets. Thank you so much, Daniel, for being on the podcast today. We really appreciate your contribution and what you're doing with Lendable. And we look forward to hearing more about what your plans are for the next year or two years and three years out. So thank you. Thank you. 
Impact on Record is a podcast about impact investing. If you'd like to hear more, visit iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out impactonrecord.com. There you can learn more about our guests and the Impact on Record trio. If you haven't heard it here, it's not on record.